0: Okay, well, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 26. A, a long chapter. It's similar to Deuteronomy, chapter 28. And in the language of Gordon Wenham, this is a, cole- or a collection of such blessings and curses, was the usual way to close a major legal text in biblical times. So this isn't unique simply to the Bible. Uh, you see ancient Near Eastern. Uh, persons and countries making covenants as well. So when God covenants with the nation of Israel, it's not an absolutely unique thing. Other nations were doing it. It's absolutely unique in the manner in which he did it. And so Leviticus chapter 26 is the promise of blessing and curses, blessing upon those who obey the law as they enter into the promised land and curses uh, curses for those who disobey the law when they enter into the promised land. So I thought it would be good tonight just to take up the blessings portion in verses 1 to 13. But before we get there, I wanted to just review kind of a bit about covenant and the old covenant. And its relationship to the new covenant. So I'll read chapter 26 beginning in verse 1 to verse 13. You shall not make idols for yourselves. Neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves. Nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, And the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply, uh, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright, amen. The chapter continues with the curses pronounced for those who do not obey. God willing, we'll look at that next Wednesday night. But as I said, I want to look first at the nature of the covenant with Israel, and then secondly, the blessings of the covenant with Israel. Now, when it comes to this concept of covenant, I think most here or many here were raised in a context where covenant theology was sort of the the default position of your church. But that's not necessarily the case for all churches. Today, in the Reformed community, certainly covenant is the way that we approach Scripture. Outside of the Reformed community, it's typically either what's called dispensationalism, more on that in just a moment, or New Covenant theology. New Covenant theology is becoming a bit more... um, are increasingly more popular, especially among some Calvinistic Baptists. So all uh, Calvinistic Baptists aren't necessarily Reformed. They don't necessarily hold to, to covenant uh, theology. So Reformed includes Calvinism, but there's more to Reformed than just Calvinism. So again, if you have questions afterwards, I'm happy to entertain those. But in terms of the importance of covenant, if you consider creation, Adam was made for covenant, but he wasn't made in covenant. So basically, creation is natural and covenant is supernatural. Our confession speaks to this in chapter 7, paragraph 1. It says, "...the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do, obedience, do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condesc- uh, condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So in other words, God made Adam in the garden. Adam as creature was duty bound and obliged to obey God. But that God covenants with Adam and and then subsequent with Adam all men, there is that condescension on God's part. God doesn't owe us anything. God is not obligated to us for anything. The fact that he makes covenant with us demonstrates that condescension, demonstrates that, that kindness, demonstrates that, that uh, uh, design in his uh, will to advance us to some further state. Now, as well, when we consider covenant, it is a structuring device of the Bible. In other words, when we look at the scripture, as James Renahan says, it's the central architecture of the Bible. He says, we believe that the structure of scripture is properly defined by what has been designated as covenant theology. To grasp this fact is to grasp the central architecture of the Bible. So it's a way to kind of synthesize the entirety of the Bible. It's a a flyover. It's a view of the entirety of the forest. We get into the forest in terms of exegesis, we look at specific texts, we make connections to be sure, but covenant theology treats scripture as a whole, treats the the doings of God with his people as a whole. So covenant is that central architecture. And as I said, there are various approaches in Christianity as to how we go to the Bible. So as I've already said, there's covenant theology. Now within covenant theology, there's a bit of an intramural debate. You have Pado baptist covenant theology, and then you have credo-baptist. And credo simply means believer Baptism, So credo from the Latin, I believe. So credo baptism, if you ever hear me say that, it's just the opposite, not absolutely opposite to pedo baptism, but it's that sort of a concept. The difference between infant baptism and believer's baptism. So there's an intramural debate. Now, we do actually agree on a whole lot. We just have to always fight about the little bit that we don't because that's our nature. Whatever we can disagree on and whatever we can exacerbate and whatever we can split on, we typically try to do that. So all that to say covenant theology is one way to approach the Bible. The other is called dispensationalism. And dispensationalism is a system of biblical interpretation and a a theology which divides God's working into different periods or different dispensations. Old school dispensationalism actually taught this in a way that I don't think many new school dispensationalists hold to, that God's workings, with people in terms of salvation differed depending on the dispensation that they were in. <clears throat> that is an absolute difference in terms of covenant theology. Covenant theology, whether paedobaptist or credo teaches, it's always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Whether you're Abel in the book of Genesis, or you're the, you're the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. So uh, dispensationalism does that. And one of the things that dispensationalism also has unique to it that probably we have heard of at the popular level is what's called the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. So basically dispensationalism is often viewed based on what they believe concerning the end times. So they teach that the Gentile church will be raptured out of the way and then God's dealings with Israel, the ethnic Jews, will restart again and they get that from their hermeneutic. So as far as I'm concerned, their eschatology is wrong. Their eschatology is strange, their eschatology is odd. Not the the pre-mill view, that goes all the way back to the early church, but the dispensational variety. But the problem is, is that they divide the people of God. They divide the Jews and the Gentiles. That is a fundamental non-negotiable when it comes to dispensational theology. That's why the church, the Gentile church, has to be raptured so that God can now start working again with Israel. Because all of the promises made to, to ethnic Jews in the Old Covenant must be applied to ethnic Jews. So it leads them to believe that there's going to be a rebuilt temple. There's going to be the reintroduction of animal sacrifices. There's going to be all this stuff where the Jews are central in terms of God's redemptive plan. Old school dispensationalists taught that the Gentile church was just a parenthesis. The idea was that Jesus came, offered himself as a king, the the Jews at that time rejected him, so then in a plan B sort of a form, he turned to the Gentiles. So once God's dealings with the Gentiles is over, they're raptured, then the the main business again of the Jews is taking, taking place. Now, that may have a surface level appeal if the apostles didn't teach us how to interpret the Old Testament. The apostles do not the true Israel, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, made up of Jews and Gentiles, all those saved by God's grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's some pretty fundamental differences between a covenant theology scheme and a dispensational scheme. And as I said, outside of the reform community, typically by default, dispensationalism is the majority report. In terms of the big name, big gun preachers, uh, certainly John MacArthur represents dispensationalism. Uh, There are others that, that do as well. Now the the third one is New Covenant Theology. So basically New Covenant Theology came along and tried to be a mediating position. Not as extreme as Covenant Theology, but not as extreme as Dispensational Theology. Now, they, they, they're, they're better than dispensational theology, but they're not as good as covenant theology, if I can just uh, be so, be so uh, uh, quick to the point here. So, so that's what new covenant theology is. There are some things that they pick up, uh, from covenant theology, some things that I don't know that they pick up from dispensationalism, but they're not quite as hardcore as covenant theology. This would be your John Piper's, this would be that uh, Stephen Wellam, the book we're studying on, a Saturday, on Saturday morning. Uh, in fact, Stephen Wellam and a man named Peter Gentry wrote a, a big book on, on, um, on new covenant theology. I think they call it progressive, <coughs> uh, progressive covenantalism. Now, when it comes to the issues involved with this, again, this is method of interpretation. And I've often said, especially in the Saturday morning class, a lot depends on on methodology and hermeneutics. In other words, what you put into the Bible oftentimes is what you get out. If you bring uh, an interpretative method to the Bible, say dispensationalism, you're going to get some odd things out. You're going to get pre-trib raptures. You're going to get the, the de- uh, distinction or separation of the Jews and Gentiles. You're going to get things out based on your hermeneutic that you bring to it. So, again, I don't want to confuse anybody, but just want to try to uh, uh, bring us up to speed on what's happening here in Leviticus chapter 26. Now, some issues that we have to take into consideration when it comes to covenant or dispensationalism or new covenant theology is the continuity or discontinuity between the testaments. What continues into the New Testament from the Old Testament? That's a good question. We've studied the feasts in Israel. Do those continue in the new covenant, Israel, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we bound by Passover law? Are we bound by the year of Jubilee? No, we would put that in the category of ceremonial law that was unique to the old covenant. So thus, it doesn't carry on into the new covenant. But in terms of continuity with God's law, we have the moral law of God revealed in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. It's revealed there, codified, or summarized at Sinai and in the plains of Moab, but it simply reflects what God does with Adam in the garden. In other words, God revealed his law to Adam. We're all, in a sense, hardwired with God's law. Romans 2, 14 and 15 tells us that the Gentiles, apart from the Jews, had the law of God written on their heart via creation. So does that continue from Old Testament to New Testament? Yes. As I mentioned on Sunday night, preaching from Ephesians 6, 1 to 3, uh, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. It's an appeal to the light of nature. And then he says, honor your father and your mother. He appeals to the law of God. How could he do that with Gentile children in the church at Ephesus? He could do that because the moral law or the Ten Commandments is transcovenantal. It doesn't matter which covenant you're in. It is always valid. It is universally applied, and therefore all persons are subject to it. So continuity and discontinuity between the Testaments. Another issue is the role of ethnic Israel. If, as dispensationalism teaches, there's a special plan for the Jews as the special people of God in our future, then that's going to affect the way that you interpret Old Testament prophecy. It's going to affect the way that you read the apostolic interpretation of Old Testament prophecy. The Apostle Paul takes Old Testament prophecy and applies it to Christ and his church So if we want to not be dispensationalists, if we want to be covenant theologians, we listen to the way that the apostles interpret the the Old Testament prophecies, as well the place of the church in relation to Israel. It's another very important issue that comes up often. Also, the sacraments of the church. I think that you probably have recognized if you've been coming here for any amount of time and you've come from a a Reformed paedo-baptist church that there's a difference of opinion on sacrament. Well, what drives that difference of opinion on sacrament? Why do we only baptize believers in our church versus the baptism of believers and their children? Well, it's a a covenant theology thing. So that's an issue that, that, that flows from this study. <clears throat> As well, the law of God in the new covenant, and I've already alluded to that, the moral law continues. Ceremonial law is fulfilled by Jesus, the judicial law expired with the commonwealth of Israel, but there is an abiding principle, general equity principle of, of wisdom that we can glean from the Old Testament judicial law. For instance, you were told that if you had a roof, you need to put a fence around it so that somebody wouldn't fall off and die. Well, at the very basis of that command is the Sixth Commandment. So in the New Covenant, we don't have the same sort of a a layout in terms of our home, but there is wisdom in putting a fence around your swimming pool so you don't, don't inadvertently kill somebody because they fall into your pool and die. So the judicial law, as judicial law of Moses, expired with the Commonwealth of Israel, but there's a general equity principle that abides in the New Covenant. So that's some of the issues involved. Now, if we ask the question, what is covenant? Don't know that we always do that, but what is covenant? The most basic and simple answer is that it's an agreement between two or more persons an agreement between two or more persons. And that's taking the shorter catechism and making it even, um, I almost wanted to say dumber, not dumber, uh, bringing it down for little children. So for little children, an agreement between two or more persons. But when we look at covenant and the concept of covenant in the Bible, that definition is a basic working definition, is decent, but there's more to it. When we look at covenant, we see it's more than just a contract. We see that there are sanctions involved. We see that there are promises involved. We see that there are threats involved. We see that there's more involved than just a simple agreement between two or more persons. Nehemiah Cox, who probably was... The architect behind our Baptist confession of faith. He happened to die before it was ratified or signed or brought into play. Nehemiah Cox has a treatment on covenant theology, and he says, the general notion of any covenant of God with men considered on the part of God as or as proposed by him may be conceived of as a declaration of his sovereign pleasure concerning the benefits he will bestow on them, the communion they will have with him, and the way and means by which they will be enjoyed by them. So basically, it's God's purpose and plan, backed by God's holy will to bring good to bear upon his people. Samuel Renahan, a more modern, a man that we went through his book in the Saturday Morning uh, Studies, says a covenant is a divinely sanctioned commitment defining the relationship between God and another party. Again, very good working definition. That's the one I think that, that would be helpful for you to kind of have in your mind. A covenant is a divinely sanctioned commitment defining the relationship between God and another party. So that's definition. Now in terms of elements, what what is necessary to be in order for there to be a covenant? Well, you need to have parties. In this case, God and Israel. In the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ and His church. <clears throat> there must be stipulations. And in this particular instance, you, say, you see... If you do this, there will be blessings that flow. If you don't do this, there will be curses that flow. So the stipulation is God's law. The stipulation is God's command, his statutes, his ordinances, his judgments. You need to fulfill that. You need to follow that. And then on the heels of that is promise and threat. So promise for blessing and threat for those who do not obey. And then with reference to an identification of the covenants, how many covenants are there? I categorize them into two heads. First, the theological covenants, and then secondly, the historical covenants. The theological covenants would be the covenant of redemption. And the covenant of redemption is a pre-temporal, that means before time, intra-Trinitarian covenant. That means the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, purpose to save his people from their sins. So the covenant of redemption is referred to in our confession as that eternal transaction between the Father and the Son. So that's the covenant of redemption. Then the second theological covenant is what we call the covenant of works. So God makes Adam, God puts Adam in the garden, and then God makes a covenant of works with him. He basically gives him, we've got the parties, God and Adam, Adam representing us according to Paul in Romans chapter 5. You've got stipulations. The stipulation is you can eat from every tree in the garden. You may freely eat except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not supposed to eat the promise of life if he obeys and the threat of death if he defies or he rebels. Now, there's not a positive promise of life. That's implicit by the fact that he promises death. So in the day that you eat, dying you shall die. So the threat of covenant breach is death. And we see that that's exactly what happens with reference to Adam. So the obvious implication is that if you don't eat, then living, you shall live. So the covenant of works is that covenant between God and Adam. I'm going to argue tonight that the old covenant was as well a covenant of works. There's a bit of debate between especially Presbyterians and, and Reformed Baptists, uh, probably the, the Dutch Reformed as well. I'm just not as familiar with the particulars in their, their confession. But with reference to the Westminster Confession and the Baptist Confession, a significant difference happens at the, at, on the chapter of covenant. So the, the Presbyterians believe that the, the, the old covenant was an administration of the covenant of grace. The Reformed Baptists said, no, it's a covenant of works. Now, the Reformed Baptists were not alone. Back then, they were called Particular Baptists, but they were not alone. There were Pado baptist men that also saw that the Old Covenant was not a covenant of grace. It was the covenant of works. So basically, the idea is, is that God makes a covenant of works with Adam. God makes a covenant of works with Israel. Adam fails, Israel fails, guess who comes to fulfill? The last Adam and the true Israel. And so for Jesus, what he's operating in terms of is the covenant of redemption, the obligation he took on himself under the Father in terms of the economy of redemption to do that will of saving sinners. But for Jesus, the covenant of grace for us was a covenant of works for him. In fact, Sam Renahan has well said, the covenant of grace us, is the covenant of works kept for us. So you've got Adam the first, you've got an Adam-like figure in Israel, and then you have Jesus as the last Adam who comes to obey and fulfill all that was stipulated for Adam and Israel. And you see sort of the linkage when you kind of think through these things in your Bible. You've got Adam, he's placed in paradise, he's given a prohibition, and he disobeys and rejects God. Then you've got Israel, they're placed in the wilderness. They're given stipulations, and they disobey, and they're judged as a result. We get to the New Testament, and especially in Matthew's Gospel, because tonight we're looking at the covenant made with Israel. Matthew's Gospel really presents Jesus as the true Israel. So basically, in Matthew chapter 2, you have uh, an Old Testament statement concerning God calling his firstborn out of Egypt. That's applied to Jesus in Matthew 2. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus passes through the waters of baptism, similarly to the way that Old Covenant Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus then goes out into the wilderness, just like Israel did. After they pass through the waters of the Red Sea, they go out into the wilderness. And what happens there? They face temptation. They face hardship. They face trial. It's in that context that God communicates to them, you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's precisely what happens to Jesus. So he's out in the wilderness, driven out there by the Spirit in Matthew 4. The devil comes to test him and to tempt him. And what does he say? He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus is the true Israel, so that when we get to the new covenant, Jesus as our covenant head, all in him are the true Israel, all in him are the spiritual Israel. This is why Paul can say in Galatians 6.16, peace be upon the Israel of God, and he's writing to Gentile churches in the region of southern Galatia. So this idea that there's a distinction now between Jews and Gentiles, it just doesn't mesh. Uh, Ephesians chapter two, the apostle Paul takes great pains to demonstrate the unity of Jew and Gentile. He's made one new man out of Jew and Gentile under Jesus Christ. So the whole emphasis in Ephesians 2 and 3 is that you Gentiles were brought nigh by the blood of Jesus so that you're now the one people of God along with believing Jews and we call you Israel or the true Israel or the spiritual Israel or the true circumcision in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says in Romans 2, he's not a Jew, a true Jew who's circumcised outwardly, but the true Jew is the one who's circumcised inwardly. So when we come to this, we've got covenant of of redemption, covenant of works, and then the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is finally realized in the New Testament, when Jesus inaugurates the new covenant in his blood. That brings all the promises of God to be yea and amen in him for his people. So the three theological covenants, covenant of works, or covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace. There will be an exam, Afterwards, too, so you know, there's going to be bonus points. You get more cake if you you pass. Uh, Again, this may, I don't want it to go over anybody's head. That's not my intention. But we are seeing more people coming from a different background in terms of Reformed theology. Figured it'd be a good time for us to sort of introduce why we believe some of the things that we believe. Now, in terms of the historical covenants, in our confession, they're identified as the farther steps. So basically, the promise of God's salvation is given in Genesis chapter 3.15. The seed of the woman would crush the serpent. The seed of the woman would crush the serpent by his own suffering and death. I think I preached on that not too long ago, Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangel, the first gospel announcement. So that is given in Genesis 3.15, and then it's moved along in farther steps. And the best way I have to sort of envision that is football. You get the ball, you're on the 10-yard line, and then you move the ball down the field. Why? Because you want to get it into the end zone. You want to make a touchdown. You want to score points. You want to put numbers on the board. And so the farther steps move the ball of God's promise in Genesis 3.15 all the way down the field. So you've got a covenant made with Noah, and Noah's not a special grace covenant. Noah's more of a common grace covenant. There's no redemptive promise in Noah. Noah sets up the context where God's not going to destroy or obliterate the earth to provide that framework for the preaching of special grace or redemptive grace. So you've got the Noahic covenant, you've got then the Abrahamic covenant, then you've got what we call the old, sometimes people call it the Sinai, others call it the Mosaic covenant. So that's the covenant that we're in here. And then you've got the Davidic covenant, and then you have the New Covenant. So again, chapter 7, paragraph 3 in our confession, I think is very helpful when it comes to these particular things. So now when we come to a Leviticus 26 and the promise of blessing and curses, we need to consider specifically the nature of the Old Covenant. You can turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24, I think, indicates or highlights for us the nature of the Covenant specifically that it was indeed a covenant of works. There was a works principle at play that if Israel obeyed, they were blessed. If they disobeyed, they were cursed. That does not mean that God suspended grace, mercy, loving kindness, and patience. They broke the covenant after they said they wouldn't. In fact, 24, not long after that, is 32, when they're dancing around the golden calf that they had made. And yet we see them continue all the way up until the the destruction of Jerusalem in the, the 6th century B.C. Even back beyond that, once they return from the exile, they're gathered in Judah at the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all this, you know, obey and bless and disobey cut off, God is long-suffering. God is patient. God does not immediately drop the hammer upon these people for their disobedience. But when it comes to Exodus chapter 24, we notice first the ratification of that covenant. Note specifically at verse 7, Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And so the parties involved in the covenant must understand the terms of the covenant. If you go to buy a new refrigerator at the brick and you're going to finance it, you better read the fine print. You got to know what you're signing and you got to know what you're getting into. So the reading of the covenant or the reading of the book of the law was absolutely crucial so that Israel knows what they're getting into. And then notice as well, they swear an oath of fidelity with reference to the covenant. So in verse 7, it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and and be obedient. That's not the first time they said that. Look back at verse 3. All the words which the Lord has said we will do. Now, when you consider the gospel, the blessing of the gospel isn't do this and live. The blessing of the gospel is Jesus Christ did this so you can live. The do this and live principle is works. The do this and live principle is a covenant of works. The do this and live principle is you must obey in order for blessing to accrue. And they understood that. They swore fidelity to that. And thus, it's a covenant of works. And then notice there's blood sprinkled according to verse 8. It says, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people. But even before that, look at verse 6. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. What do you think the blood sprinkled on the altar represented? One of the parties, namely Yahweh or God. Verse 8 the rest of the blood is sprinkled on the other party, the nation of Israel. This is the ratification of covenant. That's why we shouldn't be surprised at the Last Supper of our Lord when he inaugurates the, the, the new covenant in his own blood. Or why we shouldn't be surprised in Hebrews 10 when the apostle tells us it's not the, the, the blood of bulls and goats do not take away sin. It typified, it prefigured, it pointed forward to be sure, but it's the blood of Jesus Christ Christ's Son by which we have forgiveness. So this old covenant was ratified by blood. And again, Renahan makes the observation, the sprinkling sprinkling of blood is an oath of loyalty and a vow of accountability. It is the placement of sanctions in the covenantal relationship. The same be done to us and more also is the idea behind it, as they had pledged in Exodus 19. So here they are pledging to be obedient. Now, I think that perhaps, I've never asked him, I guess I could shoot off a text or an email, this same be done to us and more also suggests to me the Genesis 15 background. Remember when uh, uh, Abraham's sort of struggling with, you know, God's promise of blessing and all this seed and land, and he says, how, how do I know that this is going to come to fruition? And so what does God do? He covenants with Abraham. And that covenant is very significant because he tells Abraham to go get a bunch of animals, cut the animals in half. And again, this isn't unique to Israel. Ancient Near Eastern peoples did covenants like this also. But Abraham was to take those animals, cut them in half, and put them on either side of a particular route. The parties to the covenant would march between that particular route with the idea being that if we renege on our covenant obligation, may what was done to these animals be done to us. That's why in the Genesis 15 thing, it's so beautiful, because Abraham doesn't march through there. It's God alone. That is not necessarily the enshrouding of the covenant of grace, but it sure points to it and speaks to it in very powerful ways. God comes to save his people from their sins. So then this blood ratifies the old covenant, and then the blood ratifies the new covenant. And then to, to just quickly summarize the old covenant as a covenant of works. The people swear their fidelity and Yahweh or God commands obedience. And then if you look at Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus chapter 18, we've already seen this principle as we've moved our way through the book. Leviticus 18 specifically at, let me see, oh, I'm sorry, verse 15. Oh, I'm looking at the wrong chapter. Yeah, eighteen fifteen. 18, 15. Leviticus 18.15. That's not the text, sorry. 18.5. Oh yeah, sorry, 18.5. I put a one there. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Hard to kind of wrench from that covenant of grace. Hard to take from that, that oh, this is a gracious plan on the purpose of God to, to save his people by grace. No, it was pretty obvious, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Deuteronomy 27, same sort of emphasis. And again, these passages are invoked by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament to show the contrast between Old and New Covenant. The Old Covenant is never treated as a bad thing in the New Covenant. Paul never says the Old Covenant was terrible, it was bad. No, the Old Covenant functioned for the purpose for which it was given. It functioned to restrain the people of Israel from going hog wild and compromising the seed of Messiah. But it also functioned to point them to Jesus. Every time they broke the law, every time they went to the tabernacle, every time they went to the Day of Atonement. In fact, the Apostle says that in these sacrifices was the reminder of sin. Well, what would that impress upon the people? The promised one is coming. We need the the promised one. That would help their faith in the promise of the promised one, and it would further that. It would be a good thing for them. And then notice in 27, 26, again, a passage similar to Leviticus 26. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Now turn to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, just so you can see that Paul says this. I'm not making this up. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, where does he go? He goes to Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do that but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith. The man who does them shall live by them. And then look at verse 21 in chapter 3. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Paul, I think, is using law here in its broader context of Old Covenant. Old Covenant. The Old Covenant kept them. The Old Covenant kept Hedge them in. The old covenant was a protecting measure. So as I said, they don't go hog wild. Married all the pagans and compromise the seed of Messiah but as well to keep them mindful of the coming of the Messiah. So before faith came, and I think that's New Covenant, the faith of the New Covenant, the the justification by faith, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. The Old Covenant was a tutor. It was a child tutor. It was a pedagogue. It was a a helper, an instructor to, to cause us to look for Jesus. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We're still under the moral law. We saw that with the Gentile children in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6. Honor your father and your mother, Ephesian children. Honor your father and your mother, Gentile children. So he's not saying, before after, faith, or after faith has come, we're no longer under the law. No, we've got the Ten Commandments, at least some degree of, of connection to that. After faith has come, we're no longer under the Old Covenant. Again, that's the point in Hebrews 7 and 8. The old covenant, not bad, but now has been fulfilled by Jesus, and therefore the new covenant has taken its place, and or probably not the best word, has brought to fruition God's promise and purpose and plan in and through Jesus. So we find in Hebrews 7 and 8, Jesus is the surety of what? A better covenant. That better covenant affords a better hope because it's founded on better promises. So there is a distinctive difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And my argument, not just mine, but as I said, others, they argue that the Old Covenant was a covenant of works. One of the paedo-baptists that held that was John Owen. John Owen famously held that the Old Covenant was not the covenant of grace. He differed from probably a lot of paedo-baptists, but again, he wasn't alone. There was another one by the name Samuel Pado. But John Owen says, they, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, differ in their subject matter, both as unto precepts, uh, precepts and promises, the advantage being still on the part of the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, in the preceptive part of it, renewed the commands of the Covenant of Works, and that on their original terms. The Old Testament absolutely considered had no promise of grace to communicate spiritual strength or to assist us in obedience. So this isn't some completely outlandish thing that the particular Baptist did just to be different than the Presbyterians. The Bible, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant itself announces the works principle, do this and live. Don't do this and die. It really is that simple when you identify that, hey, if if grace is the feature that we find prevalent in the New Covenant, which it is, When we go back to the Old Covenant, it's law, it's works. Now, let me just qualify. Doesn't mean there wasn't any grace in the Old Covenant. Doesn't mean that anybody wasn't saved. But it wasn't an essential feature of Old Covenant religion that you be saved. It was an essential feature of Old Covenant religion that you identify as an Israelite, that you get circumcised, that you abide by Torah that you went to the tabernacle, you went to the temple, you maintained cleanliness, you maintained holiness, but you could do all that, be part of the covenant community, but not necessarily be saved. Now, in the new covenant, that's not the case. To be in the new covenant, what's got to be true of you? You have to have a new heart. You have to be justified freely by God's grace. You've got to be a believer in Jesus Christ. You have to have had forgiveness of sins. You have to have the, the law of God written in your heart. You have to have the Holy Spirit So when we come to consider these things, the Old Covenant is preparatory, the Old Covenant is anticipation, and the New Covenant is fulfillment and realization. There is movement in the trajectory of redemptive history. Again, it's not that no one was saved in the Old Covenant. They were saved by grace through faith in Jesus. When Paul's arguing for justification by faith alone in Romans 4, he goes back to who? Abraham and David. To show that this isn't the new thing here. The new thing is, is that in the new covenant, all shall know the Lord. That was not true of the old covenant. In the old covenant, you could maintain covenant fidelity and play in the games with all the other Israelites and not necessarily be saved. But in the new covenant, essential features include being saved. That drives our sacramentology. That drives our understanding of baptism. When we ask the question, who's in the old covenant? Well, if they're an Israelite, they've descended by the flesh through Abraham, then they are entitled to to be circumcised. That's not the stipulation in the new covenant for baptism. We don't ask Abraham, who should we baptize? We ask the covenant head. We ask Jesus. And Jesus gives us very clearly the, the directive. He says, go, make disciples, baptize those disciples that you've made, and then teach those disciples in the context of the local church. So covenant theology drives this understanding of sacrament. So when it comes to these things, when we, we, we ask the question, why do you guys only baptize believers? Or why do you guys practice infant baptism? Usually it's a view of covenant theology that it's, that, that's at the foundation. So, all that to say, I think we're dealing with a covenant of works here. And that's the point here in Leviticus chapter 26, which brings us to the blessings of the covenant with Israel. Notice, and we'll go through this a bit quickly here. Notice first foundational principles in verses 1 to 3. Foundational principles, first things before he gets to the actual detail with reference to the promises received by virtue of obedience. So when it comes to this, notice, he says in verses 1 and 2, you shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord." So before he gets to the nuts and bolts of the promises for blessing and the curses for disobedience, it is as if he summarizes the entirety of the law at the level of God's worship and glory, who God is and how you're supposed to deal with him. So you shall not make idols for yourselves. We think second commandment. We should also think first commandment. The first and second commandments are a package deal. They speak to the same thing. One describes the object of worship. You shall have no other gods before me or no other gods besides me. That's the stipulation of the first commandment. So you've got to have the right God when it comes to worship. The second commandment deals with the manner of worship. So you've got the right God, Yahweh, but you can't worship Him the way you worship Baal. You can't worship Him the way that you worship Asherah. You can't worship Him the way that you worship Molech. So the proper object of worship first first commandment, the proper manner involved in worship, the second commandment. So it really doesn't do anybody any good to say, well, I I believe in the true and living God, but I'm going to offer my babies as, you know, sacrifices to Moloch to, to get to him and to worship him. No, no, no. The true and living God Demands that we worship him according to his purpose and plan. It's not left up to our own devices. It's not to the, to, to the imaginations of men or the suggestions of Satan. We're duty bound to obey God at the point of worship. So, this sort of summary statement in verse 1 is a no brainer. Before I get to the blessings and the cursings, just want to remind you you've got to make sure you treat God as God. You've got to make sure you treat God as God in the proper way that you worship. And then connected to that is a prohibition against Sabbath-breaking and irreverence with reference to sanctuary. For you, uh, Verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Again, you see the close connection between the two. You need to identify and honor in the way that he commands the true and living God. And that's not just a one-time sort of a thing. You need to keep his Sabbaths and you need to revere his sanctuary. In other words, your religious rhythm of worship must be conducted. It must be engaged in. It must be practiced, or else you're going to fall prey to all of the curses that fall or or that, that are continued in verses 14 to 45. Andrew Bonar made the observation that all declension and decay may be said to be begun wherever we see these two ordinances despised the Sabbath and the sanctuary. They are the outward fence around the inward love commanded by verse one. In other words, it's a hedge or a parameter. So know who God is, worship him the way that he tells you, and you do that specifically related to Sabbath and sanctuary. So no surprise that before he gets into the details with reference to promise and, uh, and, and uh, uh, promise of and blessing and curses, he sort of reminds them of everything that has that preceded this. This should not go, wow, wow I can't believe that God, God's reminding them. Of course he's reminding them. This is, as Wenham says, something symptomatic in legal text. The God who, uh, of the people reminds the people of certain truths and facts before he gets into the list of blessings and curses. So there then is an emphasis on obedience, again, to rehearse the works principle in verse 3. In fact, you see it so clearly marked in verses 3 and 4. If you remember high school geometry, you had if-then statements. We might make one now. If it's raining outside, then you will get wet, right? If the ceiling collapsed, then you will get hurt. It's kind of a logical inference. If this is true, then this is going to happen. That's the connection between verses three and four. If you do this, then these things will happen. And then notice in verse 14, but if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, then these horrors are going to fall upon you. So the works principle couldn't be any more clearly specified in this particular passage and the ones that we looked at in the Old Testament and Paul's use or appeal to these things in the New Testament to show the glory of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. There's no mingling of the two. And Galatians, remember, Galatians especially is a fighting epistle, according to Manchin. What's happening in Galatians? Uh, The churches in southern Galatia, Paul goes through there in his first missionary journey about AD 47 and 48. It was the first time, first missionary journey, first letter that he wrote, most likely, the earliest of, of Paul's letters. Well, what happens after he passes through, makes disciples, and plants churches? These guys come in and they say, oh, it's good that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but you also have to get circumcised. You also have to obey our calendar. You also have to be Jews as we are. And that's why Paul writes Galatians and says, no, it's to turn from the grace of God to go backwards in redemptive history to get circumcised in a way that you think is going to be uh, acceptable to God. He's not condemning circumcision as circumcision. He's condemning circumcision as a religious requirement to gain acceptance from the Lord. So it's not out of the, the idea for Paul to reach back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy to say, no, that's not where we're at right now. You Gentiles in southern Galatia, you don't need to become Jews. You just need to believe on Jesus. You don't need to believe on Jesus and become Jews. You just need to believe on Jesus. That's the glory of the book of Galatians. It's not a, an addition or a supplementation or anything like that. It's grace alone through faith alone and Jesus alone. So the Old Testament is this foil there to show us that, no, that, that was not... Uh, that's not binding on the new covenant people of God. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to obey their calendar. So the if-then relationship in verses 3 and 4 and then in verse 14 indicates, again, the nature that it is a a covenant of works. So verse 3 emphasizes obedience. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them. As I said earlier, that doesn't mean that every time they sin, that was it, it's over, it's done. God's long-suffering, God's patience, God's endurance with them, all of that was in play. And there were true people or true people of God. You see them referred to in the prophets as the remnant. Those were the people that believe Genesis 3.15, they believe the typology of Genesis 22, they believe the shadow of the Messiah in the old covenant law, and that's what fed their faith. The way that we look back to the cross, they looked forward to the cross, but it was the same object on the cross, namely our Lord Jesus, that was the ground for justification for Abel, for Abraham, for David, just like it was or is for Paul and Peter, John and us. So the works principle. Then notice the specific blessings. First, the promise of rain and harvest, verses 4 and 5. The promise of peace, verses 6 to 10. And then the promise of God's presence in verses 11 to 13. So you go into the land, you do what you're supposed to do, and good things will come to you. If you perform my statutes, there will be blessings. Now, we know when we turn you know, past this page, they don't do that. And nevertheless, God in his mercy and in his grace gives them rain. God in his mercy and in his grace gives them his presence. God in his mercy and in his grace gives them his peace, That uh, gives them his peace. So, so it's not just this, okay, here's your works principle, you failed, that's it, you're done. No, there is this long suffering of God that continues ultimately until the time of Messiah. And then it continues, but in a in not the same sort of a way. Well, kind of in the same sort of a way. I don't think there's a strict parallel, but there is some sort of a parallel. We don't always do what we're supposed to do, and God doesn't just cut us off, but that's because the covenant had. He always did what he was supposed to do, and we have safety and peace and blessing in him. So notice the promise of rain and harvest. You need this. If you're going to get a land, you're going to inherit the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, It's a land fruitful, it abounds, it's got, you know, milk and honey, but it can't do that without rain, can't do that without water from on high, so God promises that. Then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. Now, you could have all the bread in the world, you could have all the Costco's in your land, but if you have foreign invaders, what are they going to do? They're going to take your Costco's. They're going to take your bread. In fact, turn to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 6. The Midianites had this campaign of going scorched earth on Israel in order to deprive them of their, their food. And so God promises not only food, but he promises peace. Because Again, if you've got a garage full, filled with freezers stuffed with meat, and somebody comes and shoots you, that meat doesn't do you a whole lot of good. And and in Judges six you have this, it's in the Gideon cycle. Notice in verse one then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was. This is verse 3 in Judges 6, at least in the New King James, has always caused me to smirk or smile a little bit. Listen to what it says. So it was, whenever Israel, Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Now, the idea is that they came up to go scorched earth on what they had sown. But I think they sowed and then Midianites came up out of the earth. That's kind of how I read it. I guess that's an odd hermeneutic, but but here's the point. So it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. Look at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the midianites so this promise of peace in Leviticus chapter 26 follows naturally on the promise of rain and harvest there's got to be protection there's got to be safety there's got to be peace for you to enjoy the good things that God has given and that's specified in verses 6 to 10 i will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid i think that speaks to the comfort of your home as we saw in the year of jubilee god actually is pro liberty God actually is pro-prosperity, not prosperity gospel, not health, wealth for an end of themselves, but God in the year of Jubilee shows us something of his heart toward his people. He wants you to be free. He wants you to have your land. He doesn't want you to be a slave want you to be able to engage or enjoy the, the good gifts that he's given. I think at times we treat God as if he's just this, you know, cosmic miser just doling out a few things. That's not the, the, the picture that you get of God. God is this overly abundant, gracious, and glorious father that loves to give good gifts to his children. <clears throat> and so in that Old Covenant setting, he does that. So this lying down and, and not being afraid, I think, speaks to having peace in your home. Having the ability to go out to work, come home from work, kiss your wife, hug your kids, play ball, and lay down safely without being attacked. He goes on to say, I will rid the land of evil, or in the margin, wild beasts. Why? Because lions and bears, they make tough neighbors. So, you know, having those absent from the land is a good thing. The sword will not go through your land. Foreign invaders, enemies. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. Doesn't sound like a miserly God. Doesn't sound like Ebenezer Scrooge. Doesn't sound like he's just doling out a few pieces of, uh, 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 of coins there. He is beneficent, he is benevolent, he is gracious, he is abundant in this goodness, and he promises this contingent upon their obedience. So when we get to the new covenant, we have it contingent upon the obedience of Jesus. So what I think Paul means in Romans 8, if he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not freely with him give us all things? And again, not health, wealth, prosperity. The idea is is that God is not a miser in your relationship with him. There's abundant mercy. There is abundant grace. There's abundant wisdom. There's riches of grace that God gives to his people. And then the final thing is the promise of his presence. Verse 11, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke, and made you walk upright. This, I will walk among you, verse 12, and be your God, and you shall be my people. That's the pinnacle of covenant blessing in the Old Covenant. You get to the New Covenant, it's the pinnacle of covenant blessing in the New Covenant. Revelation 21-3, Revelation 21-7, Revelation 21-22-25, I think the chapter ends, and then 22-1-6. What's the emphasis? You are my people, I am your God. So what happened in the garden where God walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve was forfeit by them because of their sin. It's recovered for us by our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's where we're heading, to the new Jerusalem, where there's no need for a temple, a physical structure, because God and the Lamb are its temple. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this section of Holy Scripture and for the entirety of the old covenant and how it prepares us for the the blessedness of the new covenant brought, brought by our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you are abundantly kind to us. And I pray now that you would go with us and bring us together on the Lord's day that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray through Christ the Lord. Amen.
1: Any questions or comments? I know that was a lot. Yeah. The problem is too much. You can't put it all together. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am. I Sorry. Been, I, <laughs> okay? uh, I do get a question. You yeah. I think it's to wrap my head around this. We go back to the Old Testament, like, uh the people of Israel. Yeah. And God says, you do these things and you shall live. You yeah. okay. no. do these no. commands and you shall live. I, I equate yeah. that with salvation. Um, I, I like saying, well, yes, yeah, partially. But the reality I don't is um, I just don't like you do these <laughs> things and you shall. Well, there's, there's of living in the land. Everybody yeah, will do the land, and it's you will. OK? So the correlation here is is that we know that no man is saved by keeping of the law. Right. OK, so I know that they do the best they want to keep the decalogue and whatever yeah. ceremonial, they ain't going to do it properly. That's right. They, they're going to falter all the time. Okay. now they had a process in there which was a sacrificial system of covering of covering the sins right. or in Christ which is the antitype it is the removal they're gone okay but so the question comes down to is like okay you talk about a works faith but Paul says no it's always being by faith that's right that is blurry for me when I try to put that together for a second because like is it works oriented well I know it's not works works-oriented. The impression I'm getting now what you're saying is that the individual that a true is a light would believe God's promises, such as Genesis, okay, and going through. And because of that, okay, his faith was in that and he would trust God and therefore be obedient to make an effort to keep these laws, mm. knowing that's right, knowing full well that he's going to falter. But God says, in obedience, you're going to falter, but you will go and do this, such as you will sacrifice. And, 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 but he does it by faith in what that sacrifice points to.
0: Exactly, the rank and file Israelite that's not converted, yep. he hasn't faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he does those things, he can maintain participation in the Old Covenant. So Old Covenant saints were saved, not because of the Old Covenant, but by virtue of the New Covenant. So the Old Covenant did keep a covenant people together. It operated at a physical level. You know, it's interesting, Paul in Ephesians 1, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In the Old Covenant, it runs along physical in large part. Again, there's reasons. I think God wanted to protect. You see this in, in Nehemiah and Ezra. You see them marrying the pagans around them. And God commands that, or Ezra, or Nehemiah commands that they put away these pagan wives. Why? Because God is anti, you know, he's a racist. No, they're going to jeopardize the seed. He has to be born of the tribe of Judah. So I think that's one of the purposes for that covenant. It kind of holds them together. But along the way, because of the works that they see themselves, the believers, I can't do these things. They would cry out, thankfully, that there is one coming who can do these works. So, So the physical blessings that we see here specifically were real. They did benefit. They did go into the Promised Land. There were times when, you know, they sowed and many Midianites didn't come up. They sowed and they got to enjoy the, the many benefits of it. So, Old Covenant fa- uh, saints had faith in the new covenant Messiah. They had him by promise in Genesis 3. They had him by the types in Genesis 22. They had him in the shadow of the law of Moses as well. Deuteronomy 30 reads just like Jeremiah 31. It basically says, I know you're going to fail. I know you're going to, you know, do horrible things in the land. But there's a day coming when I will circumcise you in the heart. So I don't know if that helps. So the old covenant saint had faith went through all of the Old Covenant practices, and he was mindful. Like Paul says in the book of Hebrews, in this there was a reminder every year for sin. So he goes on that Day of Atonement, he presents his sacrifice to the priests, they lay the hands on the scapegoat, the scapegoat's driven out into the wilderness, but they didn't have that, they, they had that, that understanding that there's one, one day coming when that's going to be for, for real. Not that this was fake and not that it didn't work, but it wasn't the end. It was the type. So the faithful or the remnant <clears throat> had that understanding. But it wasn't built into the old covenant. The old covenant was the do this and live. So the, not, the, the people that had heard the, you know, Genesis 3.15, they heard of the typology, they heard of the shadow of Christ and the law of Moses, and they rejected that. They were operating on that principle. I got to do this in order to participate in the land.
1: Know that we have remissions of sins. It's done. That's right. Okay? It's finished. Okay? So now we're in a better system that we don't have to continually go back That's it. right. Go back to it and back to it. That's what Paul is saying. It's a much better system. You don't That's have right. to keep repeating that. Okay. But the promises of how God operates are almost identical in the in a sense in, in, to the old, old, the old testament where he says, I'll keep you, don't worry about the future, don't worry about your enemies. But therefore
0: we still live by faith that God is a God that keeps his promises. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I always think that there are definitely analogies between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God. Certainly there's connection, there's, you know, all these things that we have in common. <clears throat> but I think one of the things we need to be careful of is to 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 make the new covenant the old covenant. In other words, we, we see there, you know, we need to obey and, 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 and make sure that we, we toe the line. And then we get into the new covenant. I'm not suggesting we don't need to obey and we don't need to toe the line. But we rejoice that Christ obeyed and towed the line for us and we have that righteousness imputed to us and received by faith alone, along with forgiveness because of his precious blood. So the motivation for holiness in the Christian life is not boy, if I don't do this, I'm going to be thrown out of the covenant. If I don't do this, I'm going to be tossed out on my ear. The motivation in the the new covenant is because God does this, because Christ lived, died, and was raised again, I want to do this. And when I don't, I confess it and I seek forgiveness from my master. But I don't live with that conditionality where, man, if I don't, you know, toe this line just right, I'm going to be out. That's a, that's a, yeah, that's the guilt, grace, gratitude, versus a guilt, grace, I got to keep myself in, and that's why we pick on Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism collapses the distinction between justification and sanctification. So for Rome, it's faith and faithfulness, it's Galatians, faith plus obedience, faith plus circumcision, faith plus whatever, But it's not just Rome, there's something in Protestantism called New Perspective on Paul. They're essentially that same way. Then from them, they have a weird Presbyterian cousin called the the Federal Vision. And they have that same sort of an idea as well. If I don't obey, I'm going to be cast out. If I don't obey, I'm going to be cut out. Now again, I'm not advocating disobedience. I'm not suggesting don't obey. No. But the ground and the motivation for obedience is not if I don't do it, I'm out. I'm doing it because I've been justified freely by his grace. That's Paul's point, Romans 6. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Where does he go? He doesn't go to the law first, he goes to the gospel. You died with Christ, you were buried with Christ, you've been raised with Christ. He goes to the truth of the cross. To make the argument that you don't continue in sin, that grace may abound. And then he goes to the law later don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. So the motivation for the new covenant saint isn't necessarily the way it was for the old covenant participant. If I don't tow the line in the land, there's going to be wild beasts, there's going to be bears at my house, there's going to be lions, I'm going to have Midianites whenever I sow, I'm going to have all these problems. So one more. Yep.
1: Good, no. On the floor. <laughs> um. Okay, so, when Christ says, okay, when the scripture says, in the future, I'm going to write my laws on their minds and on their hearts. Yep. Okay? So, when I look at that, I look at the life of the believer. Okay. Yes, when the believer believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears> what we have is this grand opportunity to live a life of gratitude. But we still have a remaining corruption. Of what we have in front of us today is the means. That's right. Okay? The means of the work of the Spirit. We read the word, pray right. the word, sing the word, okay? So let put it in layman's terms, God is saying, the tools are all there. You want to lay it home and do nothing, okay, don't, ex- don't be surprised when trouble comes upon you. Sure. But well, when I give you the means, I just go to church. We don't do it because it's worse. We do it because there we have the Word of God preached to us to renew our minds, to build us up, right. to build us into stronger states. where writes the laws on our minds, out on our hearts. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, amen. <laughs> amen, brother. Preach it. <laughs> that was
0: good. All right. No, that was that was uh, that was really good. Good. Good to that have you good. back. Um,